Well, shalom, everybody. Another week, another uh, another reading. It's story time, boys and girls. My name is Noel, and uh, shalom, Pamela. It's good to see you here tonight. I don't know about you guys, but I love coffee. And hold on a second. That's good. So if I ever started another YouTube channel, I think I would call it something like, I don't know, like truth talk or something like that. But it would be like, it would be truth talk with coffee. And you would just, you, it would be me with somebody else every episode and we'd just be sitting around drinking coffee. And, you know, maybe five minutes, 15 minutes go by. I don't know how long go by, but it, finally somebody has something to say that is, you know, truth, truthful, truth-based, seeking truth, you know, and just, yeah, anyways, uh, Dave, good to see you. David and Dave, good to see you guys. Uh, Dave Shalom from Under the Throne. And uh, anyways, this is a uh, book of wisdom. I, was, I couldn't remember there what we were uh, reading through tonight. This is book of wisdom. It's a phenomenal book. I was studying it all day today and I was thinking, I don't know if we're going to finish this tonight. We'll see because I'm going to give it about two hours. I'm going to cap it off at uh, 11 o'clock. This is nine o'clock Eastern time right now. And I do want to while I wait for uh, individuals to show up, we got a few people coming in. Uh, ja and wife, 21 mom, welcome everybody. As I wait for people to come in, I want to remind everyone that we meet every uh, Friday night. This is new. Uh, I used to be Saturday nights, but Friday nights, YouTube live. And hopefully I, you guys can make this a tradition in your household. And uh, we'll be starting a little bit later. I know I said seven o'clock in the past, but you you guys spoke. I listened. A lot of people were telling me on the West Coast that you know it's it's four o'clock there, right? If I start at seven o'clock, they're like, we can't. There's no way we can do that. Four o'clock is not going to work. So uh, we'll be starting seven. <laughs> I just got backwards there. Nine o'clock Eastern time, which is going to be six o'clock. Uh, West Coast time. We're going to be starting tomorrow for uh, uh, Sabbath celebration and uh, reading through the Torah portions, of course, this is the Paleo Hebrew. I'm telling you this now, too, so that uh, if you guys would like to have your own translation to follow along, I am selling it uh, on Patreon. My Patreon page has a shop, believe it or not. You can go there, and there are several books to uh, download. And this was the translation put out by Pamela. So you, you can do this in advance and, of course, not have to worry about on Sabbath, have it ready to go. And uh, one more thing to, to mention is that I just published, uh, just dropped my latest book, The Glorious Appearing of Yehusha HaMashiach. I'll have to be talking about that more. But I've put out so many videos on this in the past as, as I was writing it. So I'm really excited. This will be the selection of the month for November for anyone who is a TUC book club a subscriber that will be the re the recommended pick as you guys probably know now we do not send out books automatically you have to go in and pick whatever book you want from the uh the archives you know from the catalog and uh you know that's gonna be the recommended book all right so we are starting out tonight on let me go to the table of constants here and figure out where we're at we ended on with 13 that was the last chapter we went over uh the religious life so we are on personal conduct let me put uh well i'll just fast forward here through 
I don't have a keyboard in front of me, so I'm going to just skim through it this way. There we go. That wasn't so bad. Personal Conduct, Chapter 14, Book Wisdom. I don't think I need to give an introduction again on this book. It's I've done it so many times. Uh, Lisa, Seeking Confirmation, Congregation of Elohim, Crazy Chicken Boy, uh, Shalom, everybody who's coming in. Good to see you guys. Good to see new faces, old faces, and um, yeah. All right, let us begin. 14, Personal Conduct. Every man should have a cause to fight for and a road to follow. He should fight for the cause until its objective is attained and follow the road until the end. The horizon of each should be outward towards perfection. The causeless man is like a riderless horse. I don't know how many uh, movie, <laughs> movies I've actually seen in recent years where it's like, uh, you know, these are like purposeful scripts that are coming out in Hollywood to the point that it's like, okay, I see what you guys are doing here. Uh, but you see like these people who used to have a cause in the past, they might've been an action hero or whatever, and they're old now. And they've, you know, they've lost the purpose of life and, you know, they're, they're like just wandering around aimlessly and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I like the second verse better though. It is better to adhere to one cause absolutely and wholeheartedly, and wholeheartedly than to dabble in many causes without being wholehearted in any. So, you know, that's, uh, it's kind of like the jack of all trades, right? Master of none. And uh, I'll give you an example of uh, maybe a, a pursuit to follow here in a second. A truly great cause should carry all other worldly causes forward with it, meaning it shouldn't be like hypocritical. It shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't be dislodged or there shouldn't be compartmentalism, you know, or cognitive dissonance, right? It, it shouldn't be something that, uh, like the cause you follow and pursue in life that gives meaning and purpose life that actually helps uh, kind of chisel you into the 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 man you're supposed to be or the woman, it shouldn't be contradictory to the truth, right? All right, but a man is judged by what he fights for or what he declines to fight for. He must do one or the other. Oh, and I skipped this here. It says, uh, and one great cause cannot fall into conflict with another. Now, this is really important. And... I thought of the example of, say, pro-life, all right? Of course, you guys all know what pro-life is. It is the, the belief that uh, uh, life begins at conception and that the, the, a baby comes out of a fetus. Uh, a fetus is a, is a life. It's a living thing. And so someone may feel uh, led to devote their entire life to spreading pro-life, right? That is a worthy cause. You know, if they're if they're just dabbling in it for like five minutes here and then dabbling in something else five minutes, 15 minutes there, they're not going to get very far. Right. All right. Well, let's talk about and, and obviously pro-life falls into um, uh, perfection with everything else within Scripture. Right. It makes total sense. Well, here's a conflict uh, uh, pro-choice. All right. Now, I grew up with an extended family that was very liberal. And by, I shouldn't say very liberal because when I say liberal, I mean like old school liberal. A lot of people don't realize that Elon Musk is actually liberal, but they think he's conservative. And in fact, recently he's come out and said, guys, I'm not conservative. I'm, I'm liberal. It just so happens that I've taken this position that's like 1960s liberal 
And then the liberals went just off a cliff crazy. You know, they can't even define what a man or a woman is anymore, right? I mean, they've just gone crazy. And he's like, I'm not going there. So to everyone else, he's looking conservative. It's the same thing with um, RFK Jr., who's coming on the scene now. And he is a... Uh, a lot of people think he's a conservative. No, he's a liberal, but a lot of conservatives, you know, uh, back in the day, they would have been like back in the sixties, a lot of conservatives today probably would have been liberal, right? Just the party has shifted and changed, uh, very dramatically. Well, so I grew up in a, a, a liberal family. I was trying to qualify, you know, they're like a 1960s, you know, or you can even say a Reagan era liberal family. And they would, you know, go to church, be Christian, read their Bible, all these things. But they went with their party and they were pro-choice. And I would always go look at this and go, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, this is the biggest cognitive, cognitive dissonance, compartmentalism, whatever phrase you want to throw in there. It falls in total conflict with their entire worldview of the Bible and so on and so forth, right? This is what we're talking about, that we need to evaluate our lives and all of the things that we pursue. And does this fall in conflict with the truth? All right. A man must keep careful watch on himself so he does not wax fat and self-indulgent. Whatever his position in life, he should always be engaged in some worthwhile occupation and never neglect the study of the sacred books. Idleness is the mother of miseries. Indolence occupies itself in filling the body with fat. I wish I had the the like the five stages of I think it's the five stages of uh, a, a society's rise and fall. It might be several stages, but the the stage right before the final collapse is when uh, society becomes self indulgence and uh, you know gets uh, waxes fat as they use here. And when you actually, you know, read that, we're actually beyond the stage now. We actually have crossed that th that line and we're like in the final stage where the, the, the society growing fat was kind of like beginning in the 1980s, going to the 1990s. And uh, we're, you know, on the collapse side now of it. To study the books of wisdom is good for thereby a man learns what to do and what not to do. On the other hand, if a man is busily engaged in earning his livelihood and fulfilling his obligations, it will not occur to him to steal and fornicate. So do you see what's happening right here? Okay. You got, they're contrasting two individuals, both of which are, we're assuming they are religious, spiritually minded individuals. One guy is sitting around devoting his life to the studying of the books of wisdom of the sacred uh, scripture. That's a great thing to do. But while he's sitting there and learning all these truths and stuff, he's like, okay, don't steal, don't fornicate, right? Don't, you know, don't commit these sins, don't commit these atrocities. And he's struggling against them. And then you got another guy who is not able to devote his life to the studying of the books in the same way. He's got mouths to feed, of. he's got a mortgage to pay, a family to take care of, right? He's got to go work a job. And as he is busily uh, fulfilling the needs of others, he, like it doesn't occur to him to go do these things, right? He's not thinking about going and stealing or fornicating, right? Makes total sense. Interesting contrast they throw out there. Man and woman are intended to be unalike, and therefore a man should conduct himself as a man and a woman as a woman. They were made to serve differently. Their separate purposes should not become confused. A mannish woman cannot inspire men or serve the cause of womankind. 
If she serves mankind, it is in a capacity below that of other women. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Do not disgrace a man before others or hold any man up to ridicule. The book of wisdom, the books of wisdom say that the only person a man will disgrace before others is his bitterest enemy. Mockery of another discloses the mocker's own weakness of character. So just remember that when people are on there insulting you, uh, when they're online or in person, just just think about this. This is not about you. It's about them. It's their weakness of character. All right. And when you could recognize that it's their weakness of character. You can show compassion on them. You can show pity on them. It keeps you away from the anger and the rage, and you just you just let things be. And it's hard, you know. I uh, I go through my just my the comments people send me, and I just I have to delete a lot of them. Delete, delete, delete. I just can't let it get to me. I mean, people just come on there and they will just mock me, and I just have to remember this is displaying a weakness of character. I can be a stronger person than this. I do not have to retaliate. That's what they want. They want you to respond. They want you to, you know, feel hurts or, you know, whatever. Moving on. Do not be immovable in your ways or set in your circumstances. Be like the reed, which bows with the wind and bends all the way. This is like the wheat and the tares right here. But always springs up again. Always be alert and ready for whatever may come your way. And above all, do not expect life to deal kindly with you always. Do not envy those who have more than you, but turn your eyes towards those less fortunate. The very idea that you can bend down all the way in the wind, but then spring back up, that shows a, uh, a meek person, a humble person with a contrite heart. And I should point out too, in terms of meekness, we read up here, let me go back up here again, uh, that uh, the causeless man is like a riderless horse. And so I've given this example before, and I, I love the example of, of a, an equestrian when it comes to the meek. The meek shall inherit the earth, all right? So I've given this example before. If you've heard this before, just entertain me. Hang, uh, hang in there. But this is uh, for those who haven't. So let's imagine that uh, they, actually you're a horse. Everyone listening, you are a horse, all right? Now, you've got uh, horses that have not been broken in, right? You can't ride those into battle, but then you have very trained horses. And imagine that the, the, the person riding you is like your guardian angel, all right? We want Yah to come and fight our battles for us, right? So we want his angels, his spirits to come in and just eliminate the enemy for us, right? So the idea of the meek inheriting the earth is not someone who is... Uh, you know, uh, um, passive. It, it's it can be a very it can be a warrior. It can be a very aggressive person. But in order to be a meek person, in order to be that warhorse, you have to know how when to charge forward and when to stand down, right? And this is where prayer comes into this of uh, on earth as it is in heaven, right? We want your will to be done, not my own. And a lot of people confuse that. And, you know, they'll just charge in, do whatever. And it's like, does, does y'all want to work with somebody who is not meek, right? Who is just going to go do their own thing and think, oh, Yah's got my back, right? He's going to send his angels and they're like, oh, here we go again, you know, 
just lost this battle, but we got to go save this guy's butt now, right? So don't be that horse, right? You want to be the ferocious horse foaming at the mouth and you, you know, the red eyes, you're going to charge in there, but you're getting, you know, kicked by, by your, your guardian angel, right? Like they're the ones, they are leading you to the, to the left, to the right forward, stand back. You know, we're not going to engage the enemy now. Okay. Now we're going in. All right. All right. We read that. All right. Read, read about the reads. Do not be complacent about your personal attainments, for no one can say truth, truthfully that he has purged his spirit of all disfiguring stains and is now perfect. No matter how perfect a man may appear to himself in any respect, there is still a greater perfection attainable, and that is the goal. The limits of earthly perfection remain unmarked. One of the best prayers I ever prayed, one of the scariest prayers, I, you know, Fear is the absence of love. So I, I want to be careful that, about that, that, you know, but there is also a fear of Yah, right? One of the, the most fearful prayers that uh, I ever prayed was uh, reveal to me my sins. Show me the, the sins that I don't even know I'm committing, right? Purify my heart. And, you know, there, there's been times where I'd pray that and go like, Oh boy, here we go, right? He's going to show me something and I'm not going to like what, he's, what I'm going to see. Um, so in, in this life, they're, they're actually going to tell you later on in this book, if we get there tonight, that when you die, that's your graduation day. It's, it, we don't think of it that way, but that's your graduation. And, uh, you know, we'll, you'll be handed the report card, you know, did you pass or not, right? Did you go through life refining and refining your hearts and purifying it and, uh, and recognizing your your fallacies and you know always trying to improve upon them. Cleanliness in all things is essential. If you would not put filth in your mouth, why put it in your mind? No one allows garbage at the eating table. Unfortunately, a lot of people do. Um, the person who wrote this uh, would <laughs> would uh, you know have a hernia or something i don't know uh it, at the i have a major leg cramp or something and drown in the pool at, at the thought of the things that people shove in their mouth today and how most of the stuff out there, i would probably say most i think you guys would agree with me is actually not real food it's pretty scary uh so people do put garbage in their mouth but all the, let's humor this writer who uh was not around for all the processing like today uh, no one allows garbage at the eating table, yet may gladly overload their minds with it. These are weaknesses of character which have to be eliminated. Through long ages, it, it has been known that a foul tongue expresses the language of weakness, and filthy jokes are the consolation of slaves. The nation sinking into the mire is comforted by the knowledge of its affinity to filth. Wow. The man who boasts, of, I mean, I, do I even need to comment on that? I mean, that's so that's so powerful. I mean, you guys all see it. We all say the nation sinking into the mire is comforted by the knowledge of its affinity to filth. Does that express us? I mean, we have seen in the last anyone, I mean, I'm only what, 43, I'm almost 43 years old. Some of you are older, 50, 60, 70, 80. And you've, you've watched in your lifetime just the slide just into where, Everything is so perverse now and just, yeah, 
I mean, just the, the language out of people's mouths all the time and the fact that they they boast in it. And the man who boasts about his prowess as a fornicator does so to hide the secret knowledge of his own inadequacy. Uh, we could say this person has daddy issues, mommy issues, I guess, in a you know modern psychological um, framework. His foolish boasting is the source of his satisfaction and indicates the limits of his achievements. Let the man of weak character and weaker vitality betray himself, but keep away lest you be numbered among the self-deceivers. Let your personal conduct be in all ways above reproach. Strive to be worthy of the respect of all men, though their praise is froth on the waters of life. So you... The, the empty praise of men is very different than having their respect, right? Those are, don't, they're basically saying, don't confuse the two, okay? Pray, the, getting the praise of people does not mean you have their respect. Live as you should live and not as you would like to live. If you cannot acknowledge your own worth, then recognize your own failings. And so hopefully we can all, you know, this is like a talent issue, right? We're all given talents. We're all given worth. Hopefully we are able to go, wow, you know, I want to strengthen this. I want to do this for the, the glory of the kingdom. But if you, they're saying, if you can't, if you're not there and you, you don't really recognize that, then, then yeah, then focus on your failings on improving those. All right. 15, the spiritual realm, the divine realm lies between the realm of matter and the realm of the divine. If your mind is unable to grasp the idea of the divine and you cannot understand what is meant by spirituality, do not be dismayed. How can an ordinary unenlightened mind do so when it is shut in by a corrupt material world and enclosed on every side by illusion? Wow. Now, hopefully, I, you know, the, the regulars here, I think you guys are in a place in life where you are you know, recognizing the world of spirituality. But even back then, the writer is saying, I mean, he's saying he, this is a material world back then. And a lot of people were so trapped in it that they themselves, they couldn't see beyond it, right? Like they, they could go into the woods and not see the quote unquote fairies, right? Uh, and I, I love here how they, he, he just, he contrasts this book is all about contrast. He talks about the people who are shut in by the corrupt material world. We could call this the matrix and, and, and look how they, he defines it as the matrix. He says, enclosed on every side by illusion. He says the material world is a ma a, a construct of illusion, right? But the material world is what most people see as reality. And they see the spiritual world as secondary to that. Well, absolute purity cannot be seen amid the clouds of earthly impurity. And so, I mean, they've talked about this a lot, that the spiritual world is the, you know, it leads to the ultimate truth, the divine. There's the divine and then the spiritual world below that. And, you know, we, we hear a lot about like the ethereal realm and the, the prince of the power in the air and that kind of stuff. And then below that is the you know, the material uh, realm where there's still truth down here, but you have to really fight to discover it down here. And it was designed that way. Absolute purity cannot be seen amid the clouds of earthly impurity. And in this defiled place, this unclean place, and this, it is an unclean place. And this plays in, I think, to the 8,000 years of history, uh, the eighth great day and the final cleansing. The immaculate is inconceivable. 
Therefore, if you cannot understand this or perceive the reality of perfection, how much less are you able to comprehend the divine? Step confidently, step confidently along the path, guided by understanding companions who are more enlightened, for they will not lead you astray. And soon the light of understanding will be placed in your hand. So I think the the when it comes to, you know, a lot of you listening might be like, okay, well, how am I supposed to choose these guides, these companions who are like, if I'm in a spot and I don't, I don't get it. I mean, guys, for years, I would open up the Bible. I've always believed the Bible was true since I was a little child, but I would pick it up and I would read like the letters of Paul, right? I would always turn there. That's what I was told to read. And I'd go like, I don't get this. I don't understand any of this. This doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, and the, you know, the more you read and it becomes a, a like a, a the, 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 sh the lenses start falling off the scales and you start opening up the Bible and it starts making sense to you and you start cross-referencing and you're like, I see this over here and over there and it, oh, I'm, it's all coming together now. So I would say that if you're in a place, my advice to anybody, if you are trying to walk a path to salvation, right, return to the divine and you're like, who do I choose to be my trail guide? Well, is that person actually, uh, it's not that that guide is right about everything, right? Because nobody's going to be right about everything. And they they will talk, they will conclude the book this way. It, it's a beautiful ending how they do it. Uh, but are they leading you to understanding more? Are they kind of pushing you along go, okay, let me, I'm going to give you this knowledge. Okay. And let's look at this knowledge. Just put, start putting the pieces together and figuring this out. Or are we, you know, I hate to just come down on the, you know, modern Christianity all the time. You guys all know, you know, it's just a cyclical thing that people go through week after week after week, and they're not getting uh, things resolved. They're not getting things answered. They have all these questions and you're just supposed to believe and you just, you know, and it's, they're not going anywhere. That that's what you want to keep away from. You want to keep, you know, that 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 is a trail guide that they're not leading you off down the trail. All right, moving on. The spiritual realm is uh, divided into two parts. On one side is the place where the wicked have companionship of their own kind, and it is a cold place of gloom and darkness. This is the realm of evil containing those who are repulsive even to their own kind. Their greatest punishment may lie in the fact that they retain the memory of beauty, goodness, and cleanliness, just as the happiness of those in the realm of good on the other side is heightened by its contrast with the sorrows and afflictions they have known. All right, this is an incredible passage right here. And they're, they're, the writer here is, is kind of talking about the spiritual realm in, in multiple dimensions, I believe. Now, they wouldn't even have this framework back then. The way, the way a lot of the ancients would describe it, we think of like there's like a wall of separation. And then on one side, you have Sheol and then you have paradise in the other. And you can kind of peek over the wall. And they actually talk about this, how you can kind of communicate between the two. Um, and I know that I'm going to talk about uh, fictional literature here, but I have talked about this recently. I really do like C.S. Lewis's idea of, he would call it hell instead of Sheol. And, you know, he talks about heaven, how it's this realm of, uh, it's really a multidimensional realm where he, he 
says he refers to it as like an onion. As you peel the onion, the layers get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the idea is he has a phrase further up and further in. So as you go further up into it, you start repeating it again. Like you go back to the front gate again, but the, every time, every time it's bigger and bigger and bigger and you go further in and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as your understanding of the divine is just eternal. It just keeps growing and growing and it's unending. Whereas the people in what he would call hell instead of Sheol, they're, they think they they keep expanding further and further out as well, but it's it's the complete opposite where they keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And he even says in the book, The Great Divorce, where the the protagonist who comes out of hell that goes to heaven, at the end of it, he sees hell and it's this little tiny speck. It's like this little dot. It's so small in terms of reality. Um, so... All right, so spiritual realms divided into two parts, and oh yeah, and I love this line here too. Uh, that so the greatest punishment for the wicked will be remembering the beauty and the goodness of earth, right? The things that and the cleanliness, right? They chose uncleanliness, and they're recognizing all the things they forsook, right? That might be the greatest punishment, but but this is really interesting because uh, the. The righteous, they're heightened by the contrast with the sorrows and afflictions they have known. That is so amazingly beautiful. Um, if you guys just drop this in here, if you guys see my uh, film analysis of uh, Princess Kaguya, a story about pre-existence, it ends the exact same way. Uh, that she, this idea is this, this pre-existence princess in the spiritual realm uh, sees a woman coming from earth after she died and she's returning to her former state. And she sees that this woman looks back at the earth and she sheds a tear, comes down her face. And she was so intrigued by that tear. And she said, I want to go discover what it's like to be on earth. Now, in order to do that, she has to fall. She has to commit a transgression. Really interesting. And she goes down to the earth. She transgresses, goes down to the earth she lives this life that is just, it's kind of a complete disaster. I mean, everything everything is, is mistranslated for her. Um, even though she's a divine person, uh, humanity, they recognize that she's divine, but they treat her like a human divine person and not a true divine. You have to see it. Interestingly enough, at the end of it, when she goes back up to the heavenly realm and she looks back at earth, uh, she's trying to convey to the, the spiritual realm that even though the earth is an impure place, there is and there's pain and suffering there. There's actually joy in the sorrows and the afflictions, and she recognizes that is the joy. That's where it comes from, of the you know going through these tests and these trials. And as she looks back at the earth, she sheds a single tear. It's a beautiful ending. The realm of evil is separated from the realm of good by an etheric form of flame. Now, this is what I was telling you about that it's it's you could visualize this like maybe there really is a an actual firewall, like it's a physical two physical neighborhoods, right? I actually see this more as it could be the spiritual realm is like multi-dimensional, right? And you go through the the different layers. And uh it's very possible that the furthest layer from the divine is this realm of evil. So the realm of evil is separated from the realm of good by an etheric form of flame through which communication can be made. And we saw that with like uh, uh, the, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the parable. Were those on the sunlit side to inquire from the dwellers in gloom what brought them to their deplorable state, 
if the truth could be found in them, they would reply, we are those who were heedless of all spiritual and ennobling things. We were those who thought only of their own betterment and not the advancement of mankind and the welfare of others. We were the selfish ones who considered only their own comfort and convenience. Now, this, it, this, as far as I'm concerned, lines completely up with the Torah. This is consistent with the Book of Britain, Book of Wisdom, the teachings of Yehusha HaMashiach. And, you know, there, there's quotes in here like, look, it, it's really important to understand spiritual truths. But application of it is much more important than books. All right. So, you know, go. As, I can't say this enough. Yahusha could not say this enough. You know, go out there and, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, take care of the widows and the orphans, you know, visit Yahusha HaMashiach in prison, right? All those things, that is uh, the, uh, the, the complete opposite of that would be the wicked people, right? The, the people who just want wealth and comfort for themselves and they lock themselves up in their nice homes and they don't care about the state of humanity. And I, I should point out too, that for those of us that are, you know, in the true, the realm, and we're looking at the evil elites and want to topple them and all this kind of stuff, just the, the very fact that we can look at them and we can recognize that they're evil does not make us good. Right. It does. That does that does not what makes someone a good person. What makes someone a good person is a circumcised heart, action, right? Like if we're accusing, if we're accusing the elite government of doing terrible things to humanity, well, what are we doing for humanity, right? Now look at what we have. We oppressed the poor and lowly and exploited the helpless and weak doing nothing to improve their lot. Well, there you go. These are the wicked people in uh, in Sheol uh, speaking. Now look at ours. We sat on councils and, and in seats of authority, engaging in vain disputes about right and wrong, while the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed stood by and suffered in patience. Uh, amazing, right? I mean, just how <laughs> they're actually sitting around arguing about what is right and wrong instead of just doing it. You know, being the the actual leader and going out there and feeding feeding the poor instead of just talking endlessly about what needs to be done. We are above all those who could have done much but did little. We are those who, given great gifts, use them for selfish ends. What have we now? We inhabited fine houses and surrounded ourselves with all things to give ease and comfort. Now we are comfortless. We sought out places of pleasure and closed our eyes to the sorrow and suffering of the world. We laughed at those who sought to teach us spirituality, oof, and took a base and easy view of right and wrong. There is no laughter here. We doubted that there was any life to come and could not understand the talk about it, but that the grave had been the end. Talk of duty and service disturbed our ease and complacency, and we let others carry our burdens if only we could return. Now, I would argue here that the uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man comes – the rich man, of course, you know, it's interesting that he no longer has a name, right? The poor man has a name, Lazarus. It, it, everything is reversed. You would think the rich man would have a name. We don't know the man's name. So he is in Sheol, and he's talking about how he wished he could go back and warn people. But what's interesting about the account is if you pay attention – 
he demands to Abraham that Lazarus come down and give him a drink of water. Well, why would he do that? Why doesn't he ask to go get a drink of water? Now, maybe he wasn't capable, but he demands Lazarus to do it. He actually, like, it, it's almost like a, a person who is a, a serious addict and they go through their whole life just, you know, with these addictions and they, like, if you've ever been to like a, a like a homeless shelter where uh, people, they don't want a job, they don't want to to work to improve their life, they, they don't like where they're at in life, but they don't want to do something about it. I actually suspect that if if the story of Lazarus and the rich man is the standard of you know human characteristic of the souls that go there, that most of the people that go to the wicked end of the afterlife, uh, they may hate where they're at, and they may want other people not to end up there, but they actually don't want to do anything about it. You know, and again, to quote from C.S. Lewis, I know, but he he has a really interesting theology where he says that hell is locked from the inside. It means that they actually don't like righteousness. They don't like holiness. They don't want anything to do with it. Only now when we so miserably exist in the certainty of life after death can we realize our errors and suffer for them. Here the air is filled with the sighing sound of the saddest words we know, too late. Now what's haunting is verse four. Her, uh, verse four. Those words did once span the gulf and were recorded by an ancient seer. Say what? <laughs> Somebody uh, claims to have actually heard like the, the groaning coming from Sheol, and they, they recorded what they were saying. On the day when the whole being is split apart by death and the mortal clay is consigned to its proper place, the spirit passes through the great gates into the spiritual realm. There it first enters a borderland where the floodgates of memory are opened and each and every deed recalled. I would think that the floodgates of memory that are coming in here too would be uh, perhaps remembering your former uh, pre-existence in the heavens. This is where the newly arrived spirit waits while slowly it assumes its chosen shape and realizes the direction of its destination. Now this, this I, I'm not doing a study on second Ezra. For those of you who want to read it, this lines up perfectly with second Ezra where there's you, you can see a theme a lot through uh, Second Temple, what we would call Second Temple era literature, even the rabbinical stuff. Uh, you see it in Jasher, other places where the Hebrews were told to only mourn for someone for seven days and not to go beyond that. You mourn for, for seven days. And if you recall the, the funeral for Lazarus, I think it was at the fourth day when Yahushua arrived. So they would have been three more days of mourning, and they were still mourning for him. I mean, they were out on the streets, probably had musicians banging on instruments and you know groaning so everyone in the town could hear them. It was a big deal. Now, what's interesting about this is that according to Second Esdras and some of these other texts, that the, the, the spirit of the dead soul is still conscious and they could be on the earth at this time. Now, they might be going through the cosmos, being shown different things. They very well might be at the funeral. I mean, think about that. And a lot of people talk about uh, experience, experiencing the presence of a dead person within like the week after they die. And that's a very unsettling experience a lot of times. And 
this is why they would put on a, I think a big show. I really do that. They would, you know, like, you know, the love they showed for them and they want to honor them and this kind of stuff. Well, what happens is, is that the righteous person during these seven days is shown, uh, they start to come to terms with the righteous things they did and they are shown the rewards they're going to get in the end. Whereas the wicked person starts to realize, oops. Uh, and, they start to they start to see what's going to come of their wickedness, and it's a it's a seven days of torment for them because they see the righteous uh, the righteous gifts they could have had and the blessings, but they chose the curse. So what it says here is that the chosen uh, the spirit begins in this borderland. It's a spiritual realm, like a dimension between the you know the land the, the spiritual realm of evil versus good. I actually like that too. The fact that there's like, you know, the different maybe spirits are in these different realms, right? I mean, the, the holy wouldn't want to intermingle with the, uh, the wicked, right? But that's all speculation. But they're in this borderland and they start becoming, they start realizing what they're going to, the shape of who they're going to be for eternity. And uh, that's, wow. They start coming to that consciousness. Anyways, that ties right in with uh, scripture as far as I'm concerned. The spirit does not arrive in a state of waking, but is but it is like one asleep. It awakes to its new life, like a man awakes to a new day. Isn't that interesting? That when you uh, when you die, like you you die and then you you wake up. You you see this in like a, I, I'm reminded of the movie Ghost. I mean, I, I don't recommend that movie, but you know, like the, the 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 ghosts are coming out of the bodies, and it's like they're waking up to this. You see this a lot in ghost stories where. Um, a lot of like ghosts who are left on the earth, they don't even know that they're dead, right? Or anything like that. It's kind of interesting. I think that was the plot line to Beetlejuice. And then if then if during earthly life it has doomed itself, this realization will slowly dawn. And the newly formed being will cringe away from those who came to welcome it. Did you guys just get that? So when somebody dies, they may uh, they're going into this borderland, and there are other spirits coming out to welcome them. And these might be righteous spirits. There are spirits who maybe they're family members, like actually your descendants, and they're coming out to welcome you. And as you start becoming, well, I, I say you. Hopefully, I'm not talking to anybody in the room. But as that person starts to take on the form of its wicked eternal self it starts cringing away from these righteous people. And, and this is, this ties in with the idea that hell is locked from the inside guys. Like they, they don't want anything to do with righteousness. They can't, they're, they're not a righteous soul. They, they, they have to be, you know, apart from the light. They, they, they're going to wither in the light. It will indeed wish that death had been the end. The wisdom of, the wisdom of ancient times disclosed that the newly arrived spirit stood in completeness for judgments, but what it called the place of decision is the borderland. If during life the spirit has beautified and ennobled itself, it will slowly realize its unfolding glory and rejoice. It will rise gladly to its welcome and advance fearlessly into the light of its compatible place. Some which do not have full affinity with either the light or the darkness depart for the shadowland towards which they are impelled by its attraction for one in their state. Uh, okay, so many beautiful things happening in here. And I, I sometimes wonder what it's going to be. I think about this all the time, guys. Like when I die, what is it going to be like after I die, right? So I'm waking up and I don't know, maybe I don't, I, 
maybe I don't know I'm dead yet, right? I mean, that's a we don't really know. That's a real possibility. But let's say I go like, oh, I think I'm dead, right? And you start waking up, and that's gonna be the question. But like, like, what is our eternal fate? Here comes my two guardian angels. There's a lot of accounts that talk about these two angels that come to escort you, and the the two angels are escorting you up into the spiritual realm, up to the heavens. You're gonna meet your maker, and you don't know what the decision's gonna be. You don't know how this is going to go. and But I really like this, how the, the righteous people, they start coming to terms with, uh, uh, let's see, they, they oh, the spirit has, uh, uh, if if during life the spirit has beautified and noble itself, it will slowly realize this uh, unfolding glory and begin to rejoice. That's a beautiful thought, you know, that you're, you're going to start knowing really quickly which direction is going in. Either you're going to start withering and become hateful towards the light and try to flee from it, kind of like Adam and uh, Chua did in the garden, or you're going to start opening up like a flower blossoming. Uh, the, the last part here I just want to point out too is that in, Christianity tends to think of things in terms of evil, uh, either evil, like wicked or righteous. You're one of the two, right? Well, when you read the book of Enoch, it actually has three classifications for Sheol. There is the 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 resting place for the righteous. And of course, that has been emptied out now. They have gone on to paradise or to heaven or to the hidden wilderness. What, there's many different options of where they can go, depending on what you read. But then there is the uh, place, there is the holding cell of the sinners and the holding cell of the wicked. And this here, if you notice, so it talked about the wicked, but here it's not talking about the wicked. It says that the uh, some which do not have full affinity with either light or the darkness, they just, they, they live their lives. They weren't a righteous person. They weren't a wicked person. They just lived a life. They paid their taxes, sent their kids to school. They went to soccer practice. They played a musical instrument. They they hosted parties. You know, they just went through life. And they just they weren't really attracted to to living a spiritual life. They weren't attracted to living a set apart life. But they again, they were. You could say they were good moral people too, maybe. Uh, so they weren't wicked. So they just depart for the shadowland, towards which they are impelled by its attraction for one in their state. Kind of interesting thought there. Within the spiritual realm, there are places to suit the condition of every spirit entering it. So we have multiple spirits, multiple classifications. And that is why the ancient books, the books state the mansions of the spirit are without number. All right. What do we have next here? It's not turning for me. Okay. 16. Ooh, the meaning of marriage. I think this is going to be pretty juicy, guys. All right. Oh, I just <laughs> I just posted Crazy Chicken Boy's comment, but now I don't know if you guys can read what I'm posting here. So sorry, Crazy Chicken Boy. I'm going to hide that. All right. In the eyes of men and according to their laws, marriage is a covenant made between a man and a woman under which they can enjoy bodily union with the sanction of their religion. This is not the view which can be supported by the good religion. For true marriage is not something formed through the words spoken by a priest or through sanction by the laws of men. Yahushua HaMashiach talks about this all in the books of the Nazarene. He, this is what we call the marriage of Ruachoth, and uh, he you know, says that very few people attain that. Marriage is an open declaration which marks the taking of an irrevocable step by two souls towards a definite end. So, and they're going to repeat this a few times in here, that the idea 
amongst humanity is when they go get married, like that's the end. It's the end of the story, right? And Hollywood movies all in this way, right? Someday my prince will come. They go off. They get married. That's the end. They, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. That That's actually just the beginning. You're actually, you're making an open declaration to everyone that you are now just beginning this journey towards the purification of your souls to the, you know, you're, you're working together to attain a marriage of Rukhoff, the blending of your souls together, which is very difficult to attain. Let's keep reading. This, uh, this definite end that they're uh, de declaring, it signifies their complete surrender and dedication to each other. It is meant to be far more than union of the bodies. It should also be a union of spirits, of Ruachoth. This is the marriage of Ruachoth, though this is rarely achieved. True marriage is a union of two realms. It is, it, so we're talking, you know, dualism here, right? It's a, a material union, but a spiritual union and working to get those two, to, getting two spirits, two bodies into one. True marriage is a union of two realms. It is a twofold union. The marriage ceremony is an announcement made before all persons that a man and woman are setting out on the rocky road of matrimony in search of true love. That was a princess, but I hope I did that right from the princess bride. True love. This is not something which can be picked up like a jewel. It cannot be bartered, bought, or sold. The thing which must never be overlooked is that true marriage is not just the union of two bodies, but the first step towards the blending of two spirits. The marriage of humble people, unsanctified by priest, are no less worthy than those of wealthy people of quality whose religion sanctifies bonds of straw. Now, I, I want to know what's going on here. I'm a little bit ignorant on why there are only wealthy people going in front of the priest uh, and the poor people can't. I don't really know what's happening in this culture that it's happening, but it, it, it appears to me that uh, the wealthy people, obviously the elite who are able to go in front of these priests, they're seeing themselves as more of a legit marriage. And the person writing this book is flipping that on its head and saying, uh, no, that actually, you know, like in the book of the Nazarene, Yahushua says, like, they're just fornicators. They may not even be married, guys. Living in sin means, I. this is a great definition of living in sin. You know, we talk a lot about uh, in the Torah about, you know, what constitutes taking a woman for yourself, you know, as your wife. Uh, and what does that relationship look like? You know, do you... In, um, this right here, living in sin means living together without responsibility and for bodily satisfaction alone. Pretty good uh, uh, definition of that for somebody who's living in sin. Unholy wedlock means being bound fast in the bonds of matrimony without any prospect of advancement to the glory of true love. Or true love. True love. Wedlock and marriage are not alike, for a true marriage may exist without sanction by the laws of men or blessing of priests, providing a love exists which can mature into true love. I'll try so hard not to say true love, um, but that's like my wife's like favorite movie. We watch that at least once a year. So it's a great quote. 
The chain that binds two souls together is forged in the spiritual realm, and no earthly power can ever break it. It is worn on earth like a gloriously wrought chain of weightless gold, but not one marriage in a thousand is ever blessed with it. Adultery is the defilement of marriage, but there is a mild form of it when the thoughts of one partner go out towards someone else. Religions now existing do not understand the true nature of marriage and regard it as an end in itself and not as a beginning. So that's, they could just keep repeating themselves. I mean, this is what I was telling you about in the first paragraph. Marriage, uh, so most uh, misunderstand the true nature of marriage and regard it as an end in itself and not as the beginning, right? It, it's too bad that this isn't where like stories begin, right? They begin at the wedding day and then you're like, ooh, where is this Where's this story going to turn? How are they going to develop this marriage in something truly spiritual, right? You know, the hardships and the, the, the chastisement and the trials that actually bring about sorrow but also joy, right? A fulfillment rather than a search for uh, a fulfillment rather than a search for fulfillment. The good religion will regard marriage as one of the great challenges of life and one of the supreme tasks along the road to spirituality. Love is not the end, for love aspires to reach out beyond itself and ascend to the heights of true love, sometimes called pure love. Outside of the good religion. Union between man and woman has become so tainted with imperfection, so clouded in lewdness, so subordinate to lust and bodily satisfaction. Doesn't sounds like not much has changed. That anyone can readily be forgiven for believing the falsehood that no spiritual benefit can derive from the act. We're talking about sex, intercourse. And so even in his own day, uh, he's saying like, Look, there are people out there that, you know, religious people, and they're going to tell you that nothing good can come from sex. It's icky, gross, just, you know, just do it just for, you know, just for, you know, getting your seed in there and getting a child or whatever. Um, and, and, the, and the writer's like, look, I get it. I get it why they would come to that conclusion because they're looking around at a world and it's so lustful, just grat gratification of the, of the, of the flesh. Uh, bodily satisfaction, lewd, that they can they can no longer see that the uh, like they can they can think in their mind that it, it had a good originally, but they can't even see what the good is. Uh, but the, actually, that there is you know within sexuality itself that this is a part of the the marriage of Ruakov. Uh, that it has no sanctity, that these people are saying it has no sanctity, no higher objective and purpose than to meet the demands of the flesh. Uh, but this this is, of course, uh, sex itself is all a part of the the man and the woman on their, their road to um, of discovery, of achieving the greatest heights is, you know, um, experiencing this love together. The the Gospel of Philip is a great book to go through. Like the whole book of the gospel, what they're talking about in this paragraph is like the whole theme of the Gospel of Philip. And they talk about the, the holy bridal chamber and all that kind of stuff of a man and woman coming together. Man soars on spiritual wings and rises high above the realm of the dumb brutes. Therefore, he can conceive something greater in bodily union than more than mere satisfaction of the flesh. You guys get the picture he's putting there? I mean, anyone who's ever been on a farm, you know, female goes into heat. 
Mill senses it, uh, senses it. He like the the bull is the ball the bull or the 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 llama or the goats or whatever is just trying to you know trying to get through the fence to the females and just, that's all they think about and and it's like look you know you're 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 not a, a a dumb brute you can you can conceive of something greater that would come of that bodily union than just getting those urges out and indeed it is not meant to be a concession to the flesh but a su sublime sacrifice to love. The feelings arising in the body are not of themselves servants of evil. This is a wrong teaching. The body is not naturally antagonistic to the spirit, and it needs and its needs are by no means incompatible with spiritual needs. I love that. I mean, that's it's like like if, if you're feeling hungry in your stomach, you know, you don't need to like whip yourself on the back, right? It's like, no, everything in your body is compatible. It should be compatible with your spirits, right? That the uh, you can have a unhealthy spirit or unhealthy body, um, and they may lay off each other, show symptoms of that. But it's the same thing. Like if you know, if you feel sexual urges, that is you're not to <laughs> not to chastise yourself for that, right? Like it's actually pointing to something of a higher spiritual nature, and you just need to build a you and your your uh, wife or husband have to be able to grasp that together and, you know, and figure that out and, and journey and take that uh, sexual journey together to, to uh, discover it. How exciting as the harp to the harpist. So is the body to the spirit, the instruments and means of expression. Marriage is the, so it's like your, your soul or your spirit is the music and your body is the, the harp being played, right? Marriage is the fortress of the family. So it's safeguarding and integrity is a sacred obligation. The unity and purity of the family is one of the greatest concerns of men. But though the laws of men may build a wall about it, they cannot prevent corruption and decay from within. Only higher laws, moral laws can deal with this. And these the world sadly lacks. Now, in our day and time, there are more and more laws to, as you guys know, to break up the family. This has been going on for decades, uh, being attacked from every angle, and it has been for decades. And we're seeing a total corruption and perversion at this time. Uh, but I love what it says here. It says that no matter how many laws you pass to preserve the family, and and in this book, Book of Wisdom, they'll say later on in the book that the the one time, actually, they're going to say this uh, in the next line. So I won't. Let me just read the next line first. The three earthly institutions a man is entitled to defend, even to the extent of taking the life of another. So they may be talking about blood on the doorstep here. All right, they're the uh, are his marriage, his home. And his family. All right. So you have the right to the privacy in your home. You have the right to your marriage and your own family and children. And these you guard with your life. And what it's saying here is that you can pass all the laws you want to preserve your family, but those, those laws will not actually protect the corruption and decay from within that the falling apart of your family. If you don't have the higher moral laws. And it says that these are what the world sadly lacks. I love that. All right, 17, the upbringing of children. 
to teach a child a ready-made code of morality may not be the ideal, but ideals are rarely approachable on earth, and while mankind is so far retarded spiritually, it is impossible to do otherwise. Yet if a child is also told why there is a necessity for such a code, perhaps in the child's maturity, it will add something of goodness to the code. Children brought up with the very best instruction often become wayward and later disregard all they have been taught. All right, now pay attention because, well, I won't be repetitive. Just pay attention to this if you're not paying attention already. Parents wonder why. For the ancient wisdom states that if a child is properly instructed and good habits ingrained, this will not desert the child when it grows up. That's what it says in the Bible. I think it's Proverbs, right? I wish I would have looked up where that verse is. That you instruct them in their youth and they will continue on. But then we were like, well, that doesn't always happen. So what's going on? Well, let's see what they say about it. Such parents must honestly search their own hearts because the reason is that they have failed to practice their own teachings. Ouch. And the growing child resents such hypocrisy. Therefore, as it grows up, it will tend to imitate the parents rather than follow the teachings. All right. So uh, parents should bear in mind that example is the best instruction. Now, was it in the, the uh, book of Britain that we read that every time you go to discipline your child, that you are to the painful part about it, and it's not easy to to love a child to the point of disciplining them, but you have to evaluate your own life and go, I'm disciplining my child, but where are they getting this from and why? Are they getting it from me, from my example? You know, is this the sins of the father, right? Something that I am struggling with in my own life that is now rubbing off on them. And do I need to chastise myself? And this is hard to come to terms with. I mean, it's tough as a parent when you look at your child and you're like, you know, it's popular to say, oh, that's your mother in you, or, you know, that's your father in you. Right. But it's like to be able to look at your child and go, that's me in the child. And instead of, you know, forcing them to change I need to be the one to change. And I've observed this a lot. I mean, this paragraph right here makes more sense to me in the world than anything else. I've observed many parent, uh, children who have come out of a very moral home and they just go crazy wild. And they're just like, what in the world happened? But then I've, I've observed children who have come out of households that were not um, – I'll give you an example. My wife is an amazing woman, uh, just an amazing, amazing woman, a very moral woman, hardworking woman, a woman of Yah. And she grew up in a household that was just not that. It wasn't, it wasn't that kind of very different household. And I'm just like, what? How is it that she didn't have uh, a, a proper uh, guidance from her parents? And she's actually reacting in a way where she's like, I don't want to be like my parents. I'm going to do the opposite of my parents. But then you have some children who they grow up under what looks like great parents and they rebel. And it says here that they're actually, they're actually, uh, let me just repeat the actual word here. Um, it, they are actually imitating the parents rather than following the teachings. The teachings is the hypocrisy because the parents are teaching the children something that they don't do themselves. A healthier and better upbringing is if parents do not overindulge their children or play with them too much. 
A parent is not a playmate and his or her first duty is to be a parent. And that's, you know, that's obviously what our, our children need, right? They need a mother. They need a father. Two very different roles. Father is the disciplinarian. Mother is the comforter. A mother should act like a mother and a father like a father. Read the sacred books and learn your proper role in life. Parents get the children they deserve. Ouch. And the failings of a child mirror the failings of its parents. We read, was it last week, that parents, they love to put the bumper sticker on there. My child is a, you know, I'm the proud parent of a, you know, blah, blah, blah child at this school, an academic child, or he get you know gets A's on all his tasks or whatever. And, you know, they don't put the bumper sticker up of I'm the proud parent of a child who went to juvie, right? So uh, when it, you know, parents love to, they love to boast about the good qualities in the child but they really struggle seeing the failings of themselves as, you know, to quote the karate kid again, as Mr. Miyagi would say, uh, no bad student, only bad teacher. The children of a considerate and just father are successful. Good children cannot be raised in a house of discord. When the father is hot tempered and the mother a gossip, the sons are fools and the daughters slovenly. Those who spare themselves the pain of chastising their children display their lack of love for them. And this is a kind of a discussion that I think probably we all, it's hard. I mean, we, we know a lot of parents our age. If, if anyone out here is a young parent or a teenage parent or a parent in general, whatever, you've all known the other parents out there who they're like, you know, we love, we're all about love in our household. And we don't, you know, we don't, we don't spank our children. We don't discipline them like that. Right. And you know, it's a kind of hard conversation to have, but it's like, according to this, according to the, the Bible, where it says, you know, don't, uh, don't spare the rod, um, you're not actually loving your child. Proper and just chastisement is part of a child's upbringing and the duty of every parent. Chastise a child during its childhood, for later is too late. And, you know, it's unfortunate for many of us that are coming into, like, the Bible on a deeper level with the Torah, uh, Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living. And I've heard from many parents, you know, that they had teenagers or whatever. And by that time, or even young adults, and by that time, they're like, yeah, you're crazy, mom, or you're crazy, dad. I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. Right. And it, it's it's a shame. Um, and, you know, it's it, it, we can't always blame ourselves when we're coming into this uh, knowledge later in life. But uh, for those of you who have young children and you can actually do that, then, you know, that's the time to mold them, to shape them. Chastise a child during its childhood for later is too late. When you were advised against over familiarity with children, it did not mean that you should be too stern and austere with them. Um, so don't embitter your children. Yeah, have a little fun with them, but just recognize your role. The highest expressions of justice and truth in a perfect code of laws are not attainable on earth. Like every single line in this book is just like, what? It's just like slapping you, right? Like they're, they're saying like as, as the most just and truthful earth you can imagine, the, the most perfect codes of laws, they're still not attainable on this earth. It still can't be done. That's because we live in a, a, a world of material illusion, right? Therefore, the best thing anyone can do for a child is to teach its self-mastery and bring it up in the knowledge of its true nature. 
The wisdom of the sacred book should be impressed upon the minds of children and taught according to their understanding. And of course, if we're going to raise the children in self-mastery, that means that we have to be uh, trying the same thing, you know, self-mastery. It is the duty and obligation of every parent to see that their children are properly instructed, right? No babysitting services here. Um, it's it's your job. You know, if I mean, just y'all yeah, forbid that the way I know that there's some, um, you know, school teachers here listening and probably parents who send their children to public school. Everyone has to make their own decision. I could never, uh, I, I could never just live with myself to, to send my children off to some of these teachers who are just instructing horrible uh, ways of living, um, horrible mindsets, you know, just total indoctrination. Uh, it's, it's up to each parent to make sure that they're instructed in a trade, in self-mastery, all those kind of things. Children are not to be brought into the world irresponsibly, and parents have an obligation for their welfare. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. They must see that a child is not left without a craft or calling whereby a livelihood can be earned. There is an obligation upon those who bring a child into the world to see that it does not grow up without learning a skillful and useful occupation, and that it is instructed in the purpose of life and ways of the world. The well-brought-up child crowns its parents with happiness. But when ill-raised weighs heavily upon their hearts, a child may rightly reproach its parents if they fail in their duty or avoid their obligations, for it did not ask to be born. Parents, however, cannot reproach their child, for it came at their behest and is the fruits of their pleasure. Parents should bear in mind that the fruit of the tree of indulgence is bitter and the waters of indifference soon quench the fires of affection. The parent who uh, sows unwisely in the fertile field to childhood reaps a blighted harvest when the crop comes to maturity. It's like they keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, giving different examples. Good stuff. All right. 18, friends and enemies, or we call it frenemies. Pausing for another drink of coffee here. The only real enemy any man has is the man he does not understand. And the only man to really fear is the one who is afraid. That that's that's another great line there, right? A person who is afraid is going to lash out in their fear. They're going to, you know, uh, again, there's only two prime emotions, love and fear, right? Either you're loving or you're in the realm of fear and people are going to lash out. And many times when people insult or do th say things to you, it's actually out of fear. You know, um, I'll, I'll get that a lot because I put a lot of uh, controversial teachings out there or, you know, uh, pursuits, thoughts, things I'm looking into, not because I'm trying to be controversial, just the way my brain is wired. And I'm curious about these things. And some people get afraid, but they get afraid that like, what if more people start you know, looking into what he's looking into. And so I need to lash out and I need to, you know, do this and that. And they're living out of fear. While it is true that a man can be judged by his friends, it is no less true that he can be judged by his enemies. A weak character does not have enemies, but only those who pity or despise him. Remember what I said, like when a person is, uh, is lashing out and they're using vulgar language or they're, uh, just insulting you, whatever they, they can't control themselves. They are a weak character. You are to uh, have pity on them. 
right? They're not really your enemy. You just have, you're just like, that's a sad individual, a weak individual. A declared enemy is not necessarily a source of constant danger. He is a he is better than a false friend. Why? Because you know where he stands. You don't know where the false friend stands. And need not be an object of hatred. In fact, many enemies can be admired. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's almost like you see like the old war generals and stuff. You know, like they're they like they actually become friends after the war or something like that. Um, it, or like you see this in like I keep bringing up movies tonight, but you see where like the the uh, the villain actually like the, the one like they're actually admiring the 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 antagonist is like admiring the protagonist or vice versa, right? Because they, they have like a respect for them because they're like, like a master of their trade or whatever, you know, and they're learning from them as they go along. The man who seeks a friend without faults or one without weaknesses and failings will never have a friend. And he who declares his enemy to be wholly evil is a liar. Yehusha HaMashiach talks about this, that to try to find the good in everybody. Uh, that nobody is wholly good and nobody is wholly uh, evil. A man may be poor in worldly possessions, but rich in friendship. For true wealth is not the accumula uh, accumulation of lifeless things, but the possession of firm friendship. The greatness of a man may be assessed according to his friends, but it may be measured even better according to who are his enemies. <laughs> Uh, I have to remember that too. I, I, I talked to some of my friends about this, that there's a lot of, um, uh, I don't know how some people do it, but I mean, there's a lot of negative energy out there and I have to really guard the messages I read from people and how I respond to them. Cause a lot of people just send a lot of hateful negative energy my way. And I have to remind myself where it says here that it may be measured even better according to who are his enemies. I have to remind myself that the more to see what happens is, is that like with my ministry at the unexpected cosmology, I don't see the good things that are happening to people. I get people all the time telling me, oh, this is changing my life. And, you know, it's never been the same. And I appreciate, you know, what you do and all, and all this kind of stuff. But I don't really see that. Um, what I see is the hateful comments that come my way. And so I have to remind myself instead of letting it hold me down, because that's what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to just hold you underwater. They're trying to keep you, they're trying to handicap me from actually pursuing what I want to pursue um, emotionally or whatever else. I have to remind myself that, that it's a measurement of, of, of their response to all the good that they're seeing out there, right? The more good that is happening out there, the more, evil that is going to crop up and respond to it or the more enemies you're going to form you can put it that way if you don't want to call me evil but the the more good things are happening the more enemy the more enemies you're going to create as well true friendship is not given its proper value in times of prosperity and fair weather friends grow wings when the winds of adversity blow though misfortune reveals the friend it also discloses the enemy when misfortune strikes, false friends scamper like rats and enemies gather like vultures. I've given you guys this example in the past of whenever drama kicks in online, you guys are going to see it with me someday. It's going to happen to me on a big scale. It's going to happen. I'm telling you right now, it's going to happen. And I'm going to see the, the people who are the true friends. I'm going to see the, the people who are the false friends who are scampering like the rats. And I'm going to see who the enemies are. And they're going to be coming in like these vultures are going to be standing around and just you know, hoping to kick me while I'm down or, you know, just salivating at the mouth and wanting to see what evil is going to befall me, right? And you see this all the time with the online drama with uh, other, you know, 
leaders who get accused of things or they fall or whatever. No man can attain full spiritual development until he has learned to respect the rights and views of others. Help others along the path, and the right way will be pointed out. I've, I've learned this myself, guys. I mean, I I was you know raised, again, Protestant church, Baptist. Uh, you have the right bullet points. Just believe this. Everybody else is wrong. Everybody else in the world is wrong. Uh, you're not to listen to them. You're not to respect them. And and this actually, you, when you're in that box, when you're in that world, you don't realize how handicapped you are in your spiritual development. I mean, it, you, you kind of live in this like, you know, fake existence in a way spiritually. And when, you know, I, like I love it now when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. And I just love talking to them about, about all that. People get so hung up on the 144,000. It's like, who cares, guys? Like, who cares if they think they're going to be one of the 144? Most of them actually don't think that anymore. But you go into the Hebrew Roots movement, you go talk to, like, almost anybody in Missouri and the Midwest and stuff, and they you talk to them about the 144, and they think they're going to be one of them. So it's like, well, where's the difference between the Jehovah's Witnesses and this now? But you go to – you talk – I love to talk to them and, and find all the things we have in common and go like, wow, you guys are like anti-Trinity. You think that's pagan? And you guys are against like Christmas and the pagan holidays, and you don't celebrate birthdays? It's like, whoa, we're starting to get a lot of things in common here. And even they will admit to me. They'll go, yeah, we, we actually recognize that Saturday is the true Sabbath day, that it hasn't changed. And, and I've had many Jehovah's Witnesses coming and telling me, like, uh, that's why they walk around the neighborhoods on Saturday, because they want to do good works on Sabbath. I'm just like, what? You know, and I'm not saying that they're the good guy. But what I'm saying is that you know, when you start talking to people of different faiths and religions and stuff, you start learning things and you start realizing that you don't have all the answers. And in fact, nobody has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I'm far from it. Nobody does. And so when we're just out there, just, you know, just like, eh, you don't agree with my bullet points, you're wrong, you know, and it's like, grow up. Like you, you, you clearly are, you're, it's something came along where it has handicapped you in this spiritual development. You're not going to grow if you're, if you're stuck in this rigid system. Um, and I love this too, like uh, help others along the path and the right way will be pointed out. Let me, let me give you guys some examples. Uh, now this last week, I put out two short videos on doppelgangers, which probably were like my least favorite videos ever. Like there was a complete like <laughs> revolt of people like not watching it. Uh, and people are like, what? I'm telling you guys right now that I don't have all the answers to it. I'm just interested in these passages. I'm like, okay, guys, I see these passages here where it, it, it appears to be talking about these spiritual entities in the heavens that they have these doppelgangers that look exactly like him. So what does this mean? Well, I'm interested. I want to find it out. I don't have all the answers right now. You know, when I started looking into pre-existence though, and I go, okay, guys, this is right here in Jubilees. It says in a few passages, pre-existence is a thing. I'm going to look into it. And as I started looking into it, I started coming across some amazing things. So I started walking along the path and I go, okay, guys, here's the path we're on. Start looking at stuff. And then the right the right way was pointed out. And I stumbled upon books like this one. Now we're going through this all because of pre-existence, right? So that's the thing. It's okay if you don't have all the answers. Uh, how I determine what is true and false is if, if, if you're walking down a path and everything starts becoming clearer, more clarity, you know, 2020 vision, better peripheral vision. I'm like, okay, I think I'm on the right path. If everything starts getting more muddied and confused and emotions and, and stuff like that, and, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to backtrack. I'm on the wrong path here. 
The nature of man is such that while it always tends to resist force and, com and compulsion, it will always yield to gentleness and persuasion. Force is the last resort and acknowledgement of failure. So uh, you could say here, like, you know, if, if you actually go to war, you failed, right? Diplomacy has failed. You know, conversation has failed. And of course, we know the elites want to be in a constant flux of war. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. Power in the hands of a man in all ways, strong is always good. But power in the hands of a weak man is a menace. A friend is capable of inflicting greater hurt than an enemy. That is so true. But both should be chosen with equal discretion. Yet wounds inflicted at the hands of a friend are more to be desired than the hypocr uh, hypocritical embraces of an enemy. Let experience be your guide. He who has tested honey knows it to be sweet, while he who has tasted the fruit of evil knows it to be bitter. Do not take a fornicator as a friend, or you admit a wolf into the sheepfold. Right, Get rid of that leaven. Enslaved by his urges, he will never be constant and always a weak reed to lean upon. As a dog leaves its kennel to return to its vomit, so is a fornicator drawn back to the woman with whom he relieves himself. Genuine friendship between man and woman is said to be impossible, but this is the talk of weak characters, of whom many burden the world. When the relationship of love between a man and woman is hallowed as it should be, and elevated far above sordid relationships between the two, there will be a place for friendship. Do not be lukewarm, either in friendship or enmity. For the strong character reaches out afar in all directions. Not all enemies are personal ones. For those who oppose the cause for which you fight are also your enemies, as are all who oppress the weak and lowly. There is everlasting enmity between those who serve the cause of good and those who serve evil. And there can be no reconciliation between the two. To compromise with evil means contamination of the good. All right. I mean, that last paragraph, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? Right. I mean, that's right on. We know that there's, and for those of us who have been trying to uh, pursue that, that life of goodness, of righteousness, of, of uh, purifying ourselves and, you know, chastising ourselves and so on and trying to get closer to the father to the divine the, the we we've started seeing that more and more people who we were close with the family friends people who thought we could trust they start showing that they're not interested in our pursuits and and there's there's an animosity there uh, you know you, you can even become enemies at that point right because and that's that's a hard part about you know uh, what is there in compromise with evil means contamination of the good. And it's almost like a, in Pogrom's Progress, where uh, the Christian character he just had to he just had to flee. He just everyone thought. Remember, remember the two his wife sent the two guys. I think one of them was named Pliable. I can't remember the other guy's name. And they came out just to mock him and go like, "You've lost your mind, dude. You're crazy." Like, what is wrong with you? You know, and that's what we all get when we are, when we discover the truth and we just go, go running after it. But some people I've noticed, they never really leave the city of destruction. They get one foot in it and they have one foot out and they, they're still stuck in that cycle of, you know, Sunday church and all these things. And, and they, you know, they're trying to make this relationship work with these people who don't love righteousness. They don't love Yah's instructions or righteous living. And and I, I watch these people and, and they don't they don't always 
grow. They kind of get stuck. And so that's not what we want, right? Just recognize the difference between those who are enemies of the truth and don't uh, try to, you know, cater to them. Don't You don't need to try to make that work. Do not be lukewarm either in friendship or enmity. Oh, yeah, I read that. Okay. All right, let's move on. Next chapter, 19, the tendency, the tendency towards evil. I don't think we're going to finish this book tonight, but we'll see. Yeah, obstinate was the one mocking. Yeah. Obstinate and pliable. Those were their two names. It's been so long since I read that book. I can't remember. I, I can't believe I still remember his name. Everyone born to be tested in a mortal world has a tendency towards things which are evil. So remember that. We're here to be tested. That's our whole purpose here. Tested to see if we are worthy and we have a tendency towards evil rather than uh, towards those which are good. So you're more inclined when you come into this world, you are more inclined to lean in the direction of evil than good. We know this. The wide road leads to destruction. The, the wide road that leads to destruction. The the material part of man with its heritage of decay finds itself more attracted towards evil than towards good. Therefore, it is good which has to be taught and learned in evil which has to be put aside and eliminated. And of course, nowadays people are being taught that, you know, you're born this way, right? That, that the evil is actually the good and that the people who are trying to set that aside and pursue something else, they're the, they're the bigots, right? They're the hateful people. When a man delves into wickedness to satisfy his carnal urges, the body fully supports him and his mortal limbs and organs readily respond. The bestial desires and urges lurk only just beneath the surface and need little encouragement to bring them up. However, when a man is called upon to do some good deed, his body is reluctant and uh, disinclination invades his heart. This is because evil impulses range freely through the movement of good impulses. The gross material of the body must be impregnated with spirituality if the position within is to be reversed. Did you get that? <laughs> you have to be impregnated with the seed of spirituality if the position of evil is to be reversed. I It, it kind of ties in with being born again, right? I guess you can't be born again unless if you were impregnated with spirituality. Evil impulses press urgently upon the mortal body and make their demands known in no uncertain manner. Only the best of men are truly free enough to rise above them and stand firm in resistance. Passions and the demands of the body are aggressors from the realm of evil seeking to capture and enslave the spirit. These aggressors must be subdued, put in restraint, and made to serve. The tendency towards evil involves not only those who break the laws of men, but also those who break higher laws. The good religion should not concern itself so much with earthly lawbreakers, for the laws of men can deal with them, but with greater things against which the laws of men are inadequate. The number of lawbreakers and outcasts in any nation is the measure of a nation's spiritual deficiency. Where there is lawlessness there will also be injustice for the two go together like shade, light and shade. Okay. So again here, it, it's saying that a true religion, that the good religion, we're not, we're not really worried so much about earthly lawbreakers, right? We're looking for, again, it's, it's like the, the idea of marriage, what they said earlier that you can put all the laws there to preserve a family and preserve a marriage but that is not going to stop it from breaking up and dissolving 
and decaying and so on. So getting the gangrene that you have to lop off the limbs, but the good religion can. And so advocates of those of us on this journey, that is what we're, we need to be more inclined towards, you know, to, to seeking, seeking to get people to the, to the higher plane of existence, right? Getting them to the, you know, passing the test on graduation day. And I love this here. The number of lawbreakers and outcasts in any nation is the measure of a nation's spiritual deficiency. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's pretty sad. The state of America, we all know this. I'm not giving you anything new in the news, uh, but it just goes to show, you know, and it's amazing that it's like that's the medicine. That's what we need. We need religion. Religion, you know, people don't like the word religion. They say, oh, I'm not religious. It's like actually, no, religion is is the dedication to worship to a higher, the higher creator, right? That's what true religion is. And so that is the medicine. That's what we need. We need to have a higher calling to worship the creator, uh, recognize that we are in this material realm, place here to be tested, to be purified, to seek righteousness. That is what we need to advocate to people. And that is the, the, the more there's spiritual deficiency, the more they kick against that, right? The more they don't want that. Um, it's almost like the more junk food you eat, the more repulsive healthy food is, right? And for those of you who eat really good organic healthy food, you eat something that's processed and you could tell right away. And you're like, that's like, you like, I don't, but you could fall quickly into it, right? You can eat really healthy and eat processed food. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, what if I eat a little bit more? And then pretty soon you start craving it, right? And so it, it, it snowballs until you don't want the healthy food anymore. The spiritual life is inseparable from daily existence, and a nation becomes spiritually deficient when it tries to separate one from the other. And that's what we've done. We've separated, uh, we are a material uh, culture that has separated spiritual life, gone, gutted out, vacant. Religions which stand aloof and permit this to happen, if not servants of evil, are certainly poor champions of good. The laws of men have to be enforced only when people cease to govern their lives by spiritual laws. Therefore, all of all laws, spiritual laws are the highest. The duty of religion is to, and this is what I love about the Torah, right? This is, um, you know, most people are repulsed against the Torah. I mean, here it is. It's like the beginning of our Bible, the first five books, and and all these people claim to believe in the Bible, to love the Bible, to love God, so on and so forth. And they were repulsed by these commands. And they will go so far as to tell you this is Satan's desire that you obey them. Like It's like that's the level of cognitive dissonance here where you have the father saying, keep my commands, obey my commands. And apparently, you know, you're doing his will by not keeping them, right? These are the the... the as far as I'm concerned, the higher spiritual laws. By by doing these commands, we are worshiping our Creator. We are worshiping the Father and His Son Yahushua Hamashiach, and this gives us the higher purpose, the higher calling. Uh, and it gives, creates for us the you know I, I talk a lot about how the Torah is a transformative document if we're doing it right. It's true gnosis. It, it it transforms our hearts into a circumcised heart where we can then you know. 
live a life where we love our spouse and we love our children and we know how to chat, we know how to discipline them. And we recognize that this is a test and that, you know, um, that nature itself is, you know, it's, it's good. And it's, you know, here to do those things to, to mold us and shape us, so on and so forth. Uh, okay. The tendency towards evil is opposed by religion, the champion of good, which must prove itself equal to the challenge. A poorly armed champion, ill-prepared for combat or, def or defective in resolution is of no use whatsoever, though the people of few nations deserve anything better. The tendency towards evil includes abuse of the body, for unhealthy excesses lead to weakness, apathy, and early death. The body, and the, so again, they're just reminding you that the, the material body, even though we live in this material realm that they even say is an illusion and so on and so forth, and in, in contrast to the greater truth, which to, the, to us, the spiritual world is the illusion, but it's actually flipped. It's the opposite, right? But, it, you know, in this dualistic reality is the, our body speaks of our spiritual state and vice versa. The body that is overstuffed with food houses a selfish spirit, which has deprived others of sustenance. A body worn out with dissipation hides a spirit, which has surrendered to wickedness. It includes also all things tending towards the disruption of life and the brutalization of mankind. Yet to live a righteous life does not mean withdraw from association with all others. A man should withdraw from life among his own people only when they have turned completely from the path of good and tread the road of evil. In such cases, a man has the obligation to separate his family from the contaminating influence of those about him, but he must always bear in mind that his duty is to fight and not run away. Withdraw, withdrawal, with, I can't even pronounce that right, withdrawal to a stronger base from which to fight is not running away. All right. So there's just telling you there's a huge don't confuse, you know, going to higher fortification versus actually running away as running away. I mean, those are two completely different things. All right. Uh, let's see. Let me see how long this is really quickly here. Oh, this is. Yeah. Oh, no. OK. So we'll just get through this chapter and I'll conclude on this tonight because uh, then we get into. Yeah, the word, a word to prophets and preachers. There's two more chapters after this, and that's a really long one, and we'll we'll conclude on that probably next week. All right, so let me get this back here. 20, teaching, study, and learning. Thank you all for being here with me tonight. And uh, just as a reminder for those of you still here, afterwards, I didn't announce this uh, earlier, but I will go over to Discord and uh, my Discord group will hang out in there and have a, um, a conversation uh, as a community. And it's my time to hang out with you guys and hear you guys out on uh, whatever you want to talk about. So conscience is the best guide and experience the best teacher. Nature is the best book and life the highest form of schooling. Death is the great graduation day. There it is. I was telling you earlier. So let me just read this again. I mean, this is like, this should be like the poster on walls in your uh you know, the office of your counselor, you know, like your school counselor. Conscious is the best guide and experience the best teacher. Nature is the best book and life the highest form of schooling. Death is the great graduation day. Study itself is not enough for learning without application and practice is futile and leads towards wickedness. Do you get that? So again, that's, that's the, the, 
balancing act. I mean, you could sit there all day with your holy books and read through this and without putting anything to action, going out there in the world and, and actually doing the things you're supposed to be doing, you, you lead to wickedness. You can convince yourself that you're not because you're just there. You're learning holy things, right? But it's like, no, that you could become a wicked person in doing that. You get to the end of your life, to your graduation day, and Yah's like, what did you do for me? Oh, you read a bunch of books. Oh, that's great. Have fun reading them on your own for the rest of eternity. The man who studies the sacred books as a child and applies their teaching to his life is like one who works with metal while, is, while it is hot, right? So you can mold and conform children to the will of uh, Yah uh, when they're younger. The man who leaves such study until old age is like one who works with metal when it is cold. You know, it's kind of like you can't teach old dogs new tricks, right? Study when not combined with work and practice tends to lead towards the path of weakness. Unless a man is engaged in a skilled or useful occupation, all his book learning serves little purpose and does not avail him much. Therefore, even the man most devoted to the study of the sacred books must also learn a skilled or useful occupation. So, uh, yeah, uh, and this is, you know, I probably don't need to repeat that, but if you read like the, um, the, the Dace, uh, some early Christian literature on how you apply uh, the teachings of Yahusha and the Torah into the bludgeoning the blossoming church and they talk about how uh that everybody has to have a trade everybody has to work like you, you can't just show up and ask for money it's like you people who do that have to be shunned you have to have a trade you know have a, a, a useful occupation and and recognize that everyone has a talent and so it's not like it's just like well if you don't do this or that you're no use it's like no no what is your talent and how can we apply this here right Practices and that 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 includes uh you know yeah teachers guys like me too writers I mean there's uh, this book here the the Colburn talks about writers right that they are they have a useful occupation practices of greater importance than study for of what use is it to study the way of for goodness and being willing to do good if experience of what constitutes good living is lacking that was kind of wordy but I think you guys understood that you know. You can know all about goodness, but are you taking it to the streets? The good life is a life of action and not a life of passiveness. Yet study and learning are not to be neglected, for they are part of the discipline of living. Without the study, which leads to knowledge, right living and right action in their fullest expression are very unlikely. And I think hopefully we can all agree to that, that for those of you who maybe are advanced in years, you've kind of been living a moral, maybe you've been living a moral life your whole life, maybe immoral, I don't really know. But let's say for those of us who've kind of been in the, the cycle of the church and trying to live a moral life, it is when we actually really started delving into the study of these broader books and things. And we're just like, oh, you know, we start getting a knowledge and the knowledge leads to wisdom, which we didn't have before. In your absorption of knowledge, consider nothing impossible, nothing beyond achievement. Bear in mind that whatever is possible will one day come into being. The road to wisdom begins in attentive silence and passes through study and practice into fulfillment. A teacher's word should be goads to goodness and learning and not like a, a salve to the wounds of wickedness or a narcotic deadening the instructive pains of life. 
As the herdsman's goad directs beast and urges them along the right road, so should the teacher's word direct and urge the pupil. Words of worth do not fall softly. A teacher may have a pupil wait upon him and attend to his needs, providing it is regarded as an opportunity for training and teaching. The teacher who fails to set a good example or to abide by his own teachings is unworthy of his position and betrays his trust. Um, they, that's actually not my favorite quote on this. Uh, one we read, I think, very early in the Book of Wisdom is saying, like, before you go and start, like, judging other people for their misdeeds, like, if you can't, you know, you need to be able to rise above it first. Like, how dare you go out and, and you know, accuse other people or whatever, and you can't even keep it yourself. Like, you're an immoral person. And that's something we all need to remember when we're out there, you know, accusing the evil elites. It's like if we were put in that same position, would we be any better people? I mean, that's that's a good evaluation right there. The man who quietly carries out the precepts of the sacred books and upholds their teachings is better than he who studies diligently and teaches well but fails to put his teaching into practice. A hypocritical teacher is the lowest order of hypocrites. A disciple is one who follows a religious master, and it is better to be the disciple of a wiser man than the master of those who are ignorant. Always seek self-improvement and advancement in knowledge, for these are the justifiable aims of the disciple. The man who is diligent and careful in his studies, but not in his deeds or words, is a weak character who tends to hypocrisy. So again, so again, it's just rephrasing it. How many times can we rephrase this? You can spend all the time in the holy books you want, but if you go out there and you, you, you it hasn't changed, changed you. If it hasn't been a transformative document for you and you just go out there and you're just loose with your words, low moral character, hot-tempered, whatever, you know, somebody who believes things that are different than you comes to different conclusions and you just lose it and you start calling them names and you'll know, pull out of the, the Christian scrabble hat of insults like you're a hypocrite. You don't get it at all. The man who learns but does not practice what he learns is, is like a man who labors at the sowing but does not reap the harvest. He is like a man who digs a will and never draws water. Wow. The purpose of learning is to know the good from the bad, the beneficial from the harmful. The good and beneficial should not be scorned. Whoever dispenses them, if only our schools um, had this mission in mind, would you take poison even if offered by your best friend or refuse dressing for a wound because given by an enemy? The man who is filled with learning and knows all the wisdom of the sacred books but fails to put into practice is like a mini branch tree with no depth of root. The wind blows and it is laid low to quickly rot. The man with much learning and knowledge but no strength of character is like a frail pot filled with precious liquid. If, rough, if roughly handled, it falls apart and the contests are lost. Good has its fountain, the divine, and at its source is uncontaminated with evil. It is that which harmonizes best with the divine design, and evil is that which harmonizes least. Good is absolute quality, while evil is not. Therefore, even in the greatest concentration of evil, there must be some good. So there is no form of evil, whether in man or outside of him, from which some good cannot be extracted, 
but but man by nature tends to overlook this. Entrapped in matter, evil is more easily seen. That's interesting. Entrapped in matter, in the world of matter, evil is more easily seen. Bear in mind that in even the greatest evil, there is somewhere a speck of good which can be of service if extracted. This is what we're going to end on tonight, guys. Finally, if seeking a religious master, be careful in your choice. In matters of religion, the whole forces of evil are marshaled to deceive and delude. If one whom you would choose as a master seeks popularity or self-advancement, avoid him like the plague, for he is a false prophet. So obviously the person who is doing things to get popularity, to get you know the largest amount of followers, all that kind of stuff, um, you know, he's obviously not in it for the right reasons. He's in it for himself, the worship of himself. And, um, you know, that, that can be hard to detect in a lot of people. But some people make it a little bit easier to see. And I think we're going to end on that tonight. So because uh, let me look here. We'll pick up next time on chapter 21. There's only, I think, 22 uh, chapters in here. But the 21st chapter is so good. I don't want to – I'll do it in justice, justice if I try to dive into it now. We've got 15 minutes left. And as you can hear, I'm kind of choppy with my words. It's getting late at night. It's going on 11 o'clock. So uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And just a reminder for those of you who have uh, listened this long, uh, you'll consider – making Friday nights a tradition for you and your household coming in, doing tour portions all this, all this year, I was gonna say all this month, all this year, uh, moving forward, we'll be going through the paleo Hebrew through Pamela's translation. And I'm so excited to what we're going to discover there. So good night, everybody.